Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're finding out about the life, music, and legacy of Johann Sebastian Bach, discussing women composers and why they have been silenced throughout history. And we'll end the show by uncovering a new self portrait of Van Gogh that has recently been discovered. We'd love to hear your thoughts and views. Email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we found out about artefacts, what we can learn from them, how we interpret them, and their importance to our history. And we also found out about some of Ireland's most important and interesting ones. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our News Talk website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the life, music, and legacy of Bach. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Marcus Zeff, a musicologist and Bach researcher at the Bach Museum in Leipzig and an expert on the life of Bach and the creation of the musical instruments of his time. Marcus, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. Can we begin with maybe a big question about Bach? You know, how significant is he in the canon of of composers? What was the contribution that he made to the development of music, not just in his own time, but the influence and the legacy that he had over the centuries? Well, it's a good question, and it's called and told um, since hundreds of years because Albert Schweitzer, for example, Bach is not the starting point, but all the lines in music are running to him. And he's a person who makes music perfect. And I think looking to his keyboard works, for example, or his organ works, that's right, he's great talent to find beautiful melodies and work them in a contrapuntal style of a very expressive style. So looking, for example, to his choral works in organ, like in Kunde Heiden Heiland, it's fantastic to see how he's going from the dark to the light. And that's a point in Bach's work, you can say, also in his chamber music, the brilliance of idea in musical style and his taste. It's fantastic. And that's why Bach, the last 300 years, was never forgotten. And what do you think were the great historical milestones of his life? What do you think were the great uh periods where he created the great pieces of art? And, and maybe you could tell us about some of them. Milestones, for example, the Brandenburg Concertos in his Leipzig time, for example, his cantata number 20, or exceptional his oratorios, uh, or his Johannes Passion, Matthäus Passion. These are milestones, and I think they couldn't believe what they heard. And the Brandenburg Concertos, this compilation of different styles in six different orchestras, if you want to, um, from a little orchestra to a larger orchestra with strings, harpsichord. It's a kaleidoscope 
of his contemporaries. And in the St. John's Passion, you have such a dramatic impulse during two hours, or in St. Matthew Passion, in two choirs and a really complex setting. I think um, the contemporaries should have had more times to hear this fantastic music, to get into the music, get into the spirit of his music. And of course, St. Matthew Passion is a hugely popular work in this country and especially at Easter time, you you have these great performances. And how would you describe it? What do we mean when we call it an oratorio? And I suppose, why does it still resonate in the 21st century? Because it's on the one side extraordinary and on the other side, it's in the best sense popularity. And it was a work that wasn't always popular, isn't that right? That it seemed to have gone into something of a decline after Bach's death in 1750, but then was revived and its popularity restored in the 19th century. Yes, that's right for St. Matthew's Passion. You all know the famous uh, performance lit by Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi in 1829 in Berlin in the Singh Academy. But it's not the whole truth to say Bach was forgotten after his death, because in Leipzig, for example, the St. Thomas's Choir always sang Bach's motets and um, some of his cantatas. And the motets, uh, this part of Bach's works, was never forgotten and was always performed in Leipzig and in Berlin and in some, only a few, okay, some other um, uh, churches in Germany. And I don't think that Bach was really forgotten in musician circles, because if you have a look to Berlin, you can see the family of famous Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi, Bella Itzig and Bella Salomon, who made a really living Bach reception in the 18th century in their house music and um, keeping his music for chamber and keyboard works, for example. And that's an important part to see that his music was always a leaf. Do you think it would be more correct and more accurate then to say that perhaps in terms of the popular response, his music was seen as maybe old-fashioned for a time before then it was revived? I think it's less his music, which was old-fashioned, but the texts in his cantatas or his um, secular works or some texts, they are very hard to understand in our time. And that's in the late 18th century also. And um, in 19th century, there is another problem with his works looking to, for example, um, Christmas Oratorio or St. Matthew Passion. There are instruments in his setting, they are out of order in the 19th century. Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi didn't know how to use oboe da caccia, and so he used other instruments. And this is another problem for the Bach Renaissance, that they in the 19th century didn't have no longer these old instruments, and they didn't know the color of the sound. And they are looking to a performance and didn't have um, the material and the um, instruments. And so it is 
another part for Bach reception we have to think. It's also fascinating to look at how he how he made ends meet, the jobs that he had to take on to make a living, whether it was as a travelling musician or a court musician, an organist or a director of music then for Prince Leopold, that there were various different jobs he had to take on over the course of his life. Yes, it's um, really interesting to see his arising from a simple organist to the leading music director of such a lively town like Leipzig. And his steps in his career, looking from our time back, we can see that it was, it was planned step for step. And he went from Arnstadt to Mühlhausen and from Mühlhausen to the court in Weimar. And there was no accidental career steps. It's all planned and his skills are developed in every station. He also was interested in musical instruments and their development and we see almost an, an innovative streak in him when it came to uh, the types of instruments he, he composed for. Yes, I think it's a part of the heritage of his father. His father, Johanna Brosius, was the leading musician in Eisenach and he educated his son's as musicians. And I think in Bach's childhood, in his parents' house, he get the first lessons in recorder and in string instruments like um, little violin. And he was interested all his life in the development of instruments. In Leipzig, he worked together with the organ builder Zacharias Hildebrand who temporarily worked with Gottfried Silbermann, the famous organ builder in Saxony. And Bach and Hildebrand developed a stringed keyboard instrument called Lautenklavier, which was not wired with brass or iron, but with gut like a lute. And the aim must be to get a keyboard instrument sounding like a lute. And this shows his interest in uncommon musical instruments. Another hint we get in later literature in the 1780s by Johann Nikolaus Forkel is that Bach developed or uh, invented a new stringed instrument called viola pomposa, which has to be a larger viola or a smaller violoncello, which was held in the arm and could play virtuos, the cello um, the cello voice. And I don't know if it is true, but most are such stories with a little nucleus of truth. And it may show that Bach was interested in development of such musical instruments also. Can you tell us the circumstances of his death in July 1750? Because it seems like he embarked on, on surgery for his eyes, but went to the wrong person and was taken in by someone who he really shouldn't have gone to for treatment. Yeah, the circumstances of his death are quite difficult. We know from the town council that Bach in 1749 has a longer time ill. And it was common in these times that uh, the employer said, you are ill, I'm looking for another person. 
It's common in uh, the court musicians and also in town musicians. And in 1749, in the summer, Zara aims to get a new cantor. And Bach obviously um, went back to his position and overtook his um, contacting his choir boys. And during 1750, so we can read by his second son, Carl Philipp Emanuel, he was disabled to work because his eyes were too bad. He couldn't see good and he was ill and he was on a long time on bed and light was not good, so he lies in the dark room. And looking to his eyes, the oculist Taylor from England visited uh, Leipzig and he did an operation. And he looked to his eyes and did an operation in the widest sense. And we didn't know what the cataract operation was was done, but Carl Philipp Emanuel writes that his father's health was damaged and he got ill and died during a few of days. And we have no other no other lines about the last days of Johann Sebastian Bach, but only Carl Philipp Emanuel's lines in the obituary. That's all we know. And that's all we know. In 2011, the New York Times named Bach the most important composer in the history of music. And I wonder, what would you see as his great legacy? You know, people have written about the significance of his of his work in terms of counterpoint and fugue, the way he, I suppose, uh, transformed how, how classical music was composed. But what would you see as the great legacy? His art in studying counterpoint and make lovely music, to get in touch with idea of music and what's behind the music. To hear, for example, his fugues for organ, you can get an impression or famous aria from the orchestral suite in D major. These are examples from me as a part of his legacy. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure tonight talking to Marcus Zeff, a musicologist and Bach researcher at the Bach Museum in Leipzig, about the life, work and legacy of Johann Sebastian Bach. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk.
Well, welcome back to Talking History and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Noel Cullerton who's the author of Classical Women about the women who broke barriers in the world of music. Noel, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, it's great to be here. There have always been women composers but their names don't always spring to mind because they faced obstacles, they weren't always encouraged, there were various barriers. So why has it been or why for so long was it so difficult for women composers? Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're quite right. If you asked your audience how many could name one or five or ten or twenty female composers, I won't get them. And yes, uh, uh, when I investigated, I looked up the Oxford Dictionary of Music, again, to find very few mentions there. So, um, uh, But when I investigated a little bit further, I found hundreds of female composers, but they suffered other ferocious prejudice for all sorts of reasons. Family, society, poverty, you know, there was, there was always, and there was a genuine feeling amongst men that women couldn't compose music anyway. So uh, they, they, seem to, they seem to have constant adversity up to relatively recently. In the thousand years, I looked at it, about a thousand years of history now from Hildegard right up to the present day. Things are improving a bit, but they, they all have great stories. I did 26 women, all have great stories, but they have one thing in common, and that's mainly prejudice and discrimination against them. Because very often when we look at male composers, you'd see that there was a father who uh, was maybe a pianist or an organist or something, encouraged the child and uh, maybe uh, over-encouraged or over-promoted them. But uh, if there was a sister in the family, she wasn't getting that encouragement. She wasn't getting that support. Well, I think you're, you're quite right. There's a classic example of that now. Uh, we all know Felix Mendelssohn. Well, Felix Mendelssohn, a famous German composer, but he had a sister called Fanny who was about four years older than him. But uh, they were great buddies when they were young and they practised the piano together. And they were told, and it was rumoured at the time, that if anything, Fanny was more talented than Felix. However, the father intervened and said to her when they came to a, a certain age, he said to Fanny, to you music is an ornament, to Felix it is a profession. So he strongly advised her to just prepare for what she was supposed to, what was her fate, to be a housewife, to mind the house, and have, have children. So uh, while Felix was encouraged to continue to compose, and poor Fanny, she, it was a terrible thing because she was a wonderful woman and a wonderful composer. In fact, I, I, some, I think she composed up around 400 pieces of music between songs and piano pieces and so on, but no one ever listened. So she had a life of incredible frustration. Towards the end of her life, she married, and he was fortunately very supportive of her, and in the last year of her life, she actually she performed a few concerts in public and also had one of her work, some of her works published. But uh, like she had a terrible life, and I just, it, it caused you to wonder what would have happened had she lived in different times. Now you mentioned Hildegard, so let's go back to the beginning and the first woman composer you looked at, Hildegard uh, von Bingen, and this is going back over a thousand years. Yeah, Hildegard von Bingen was born in 1098 in Germany. She was an extraordinary woman. She entered the convent at the age of eight, which is very young. There's some dispute about the exact age, but very young anyway. She was fortunate in that she got a great education in the convent that she went into. But she grew up to be a very strong-willed woman. She, at one stage, decided... She lived in a convent where there was monks on one side and nuns on the other. And she decided that she wanted an all-girls convent, an all-female convent. She approached the bishops 
which of course turned her down flat. How dare she even suggest such a thing? But they reckoned without our determined Hildegard, and she went on and persuaded and talked and argued and cajoled, and eventually she got her way. And so she opened, which opened a convent which she had built, planned, supervised, and built. And herself and twenty-two sisters went into that convent. Now she was—you could argue maybe she was a snob or an elitist because the 22 women that went with her were of the very same socio-economic class, let's say. They were all sort of minor aristocratic people. But nonetheless, she was Benedictine nun. She ran it her own way. They, they could wear their hair very different to the nuns that we know were taking vows of chastity and obedience and this kind of stuff. She let their hair grow. They wore jewellery. They didn't have to wear veils. And she became a really European figure now. She, became, she was a diplomat, she was a doctor, she was an expert in science, she was expert in plants, and she, had, she developed a sort of a holistic philosophy of life that involves politics, religion, and science, and the arts. Uh, she turned it to music quite late in life, but she wrote a lot of music, her best-known works, The Sympathy of the Harmony of Heavenly Revelations. And it's quite extraordinary. Uh, it's a theory kind of music. It's mainly a religious, not very much of a secular. But I think whether you're a believer or a non-believer, her music is very moving. Now, after she died, we heard nothing about her for, oh, Lord, nearly a thousand years. But then about 30 years ago, someone discovered her music and released a CD, which did really well in the charts. And since then, she's been thankfully recorded and listened to very frequently. But she was the woman that started it all. And of course, she's, uh, for the Catholic Church, she's also one of their saints. Oh yeah, Pope Benedict made a saint of her in 2012. So what happened then? Because it seemed that there were a few centuries then where you don't have women composers and it really took until uh, the Medici family uh, supported and encouraged some women in a major way that we see the return to having women composers. Yeah, you're, you're, you're perfect. After, after the Hildegard, and, you know, it was, it was not just music, it was for all professions. Women had no say whatever. Women's focus in life was they were to they had no career opportunities. They were told to get married, have children, and mind the house. That was their role. They had no career opportunities. Therefore, lots of times they, they were just the possessions of men more than anything else. So they had very seldom, very little money. Now, the two things happened, I suppose. One was some women could enter convents. But by and large, it was the Medici family. They were a very enlightened Italian family that ruled a lot of Italy at one stage. They were they were they sponsored Michelangelo and Galileo and those kinds of people. But at one stage, some women became head of the household, and they used their opportunities brilliantly to promote women uh, uh, and to encourage them because uh, they genuinely believed that society could only be stable if there was an equal mix of male and females in government and at all stages of the, how administrations were run. And they produced a few wonderful composers, like Francesca Cicchini is one, Maddalena Castellana is the other. Francesca Cicchini was, uh, is, is well known nowadays. She is played very frequently. And in fact, she is reputed to be the person that wrote uh, the first opera, uh, The Liberation of Riguero from the island of Alcina. It's uh, historically very important, but the music in it, some of the music in it is absolutely great. Unfortunately, unfortunately, 
the, the Medici family eventually declined in power. They had a few unsuccessful battles and legal issues and one thing and the other, and they fell from grace. And unfortunately, then things reverted back to normal for women. And there was two issues, I suppose, which persisted for centuries. One was the one we talked about, where their, 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 what their function was. It was Jean-Jacques Rousseau famously claimed that women were as good as men in certain spheres and men were better in other spheres. But writing music or entering politics or doing anything like that was not women's role. That was the first problem. But there was possibly even a more, uh, just as equally serious a problem, is that men and even some women genuinely felt that they did not have the ability to write serious music. Alma Mahler would be a classic example of the first. Alma Mahler was a young girl uh, socialite in around Vienna, and she met and fell for Gustav Mahler, the famous composer. Now, they were very different, but nonetheless, they got married. But they had to overcome one big obstacle before they got married. Gustav insisted that she, she was a composer and she was writing some nice songs, but he insisted that she drop her entire career and devote herself entirely to him. Her job was to ensure that the household was kept and conditions were conducive for his creative abilities. That's what it was all about. And she, it's hard to understand for such a strong-willed woman, but she agreed. It went on for a couple of years, but uh, eventually she got browned off and she, I talk about it in the book, she eventually found ways to get over that problem and uh, she was well able to look after herself, let's say. Very good. Let's talk about Ethel Smith as well because yeah. she was not only uh, an active composer but also she was uh, part of the suffrage movement and jailed for two months for smashing the window of a cabinet member in Britain. Yeah, Ethel was, a, was an incredible woman. She was English and uh, she wrote a fair bit of music. Wasn't reasonable incredibly well received but she did join the suffragette movement and she threw a stone to uh, one of the houses of government in London and for her troubles she was put in jail and uh, along with 200 women but while there she she wrote a song March of the Women which almost became the, the song of the suffragettes and they used to have visitors in jail and the women would be marching around the, the yard, singing lustily uh, March of the Women, and she became quite well known for that. Clara Schumann probably is one of the most interesting of them all. Clara Schumann married Robert Schumann, the famous composer at 20 years of age. At that stage, she was a very famous uh, pianist in her own right, one of the best in Europe. And classical music, I suppose, is the love story of classical music. They were genuinely and deeply in love. They loved one another unconditionally. And Robert had great plans that they would combine music and write great music together and all that. But life didn't work out quite like that. They had seven children. They had a small house with relatively thin walls. Both wanted to play the piano all day, so tensions were inevitable. Now, even though Clara was the main breadwinner in the household, uh, Robert said, this wasn't good enough. You cannot, we cannot continue with this. And he insisted that he was the head of the household and he had to become first and he was the one that had to compose. Now, it was kind of obvious because at their wedding day, do you know what he gave her for a wedding present? A cookbook, would you believe? No way. A cookbook. So even though he believed completely in what she was doing and believed in her genius, he was a man that still wanted his dinner on the table. Now, Clara, she was... Trouble with Clara, she composed a lot of music, some beautiful music, 
when she was when she was young. But she eventually came to the idea that how could she be a composer? She was a woman. She had no there was no history of women composing and she convinced herself that she wasn't nearly as good as Robert, that she wasn't a genius, and she actually gave up composing completely. As you know, he died quite young and she lived a long life uh, playing the piano around Europe very successfully. But she never played her own music. She played. She spent her life promoting utterly his music and forgot all about her own. You know, which is, you know, I think is a, a real tragedy. And I often wonder what she could have written had things been different. Let's talk about Florence Price, because she's a very interesting African-American composer who I think made major breakthroughs during her lifetime. Well, yeah, Florence Price was born down the deep south in the time of the... She was African-American in the, in the Jim Crow laws, which meant it was very difficult for her to get by. She also famously said on one occasion, to be known to be a good composer, you have to be pale, male, and dead. So <laughs> she, she had her difficulties. But um, she, she married uh, a civil rights lawyer, uh, but and lived in Little Rock in Arkansas. But the lynching and the discriminations were terrible down there. And after a particularly horrible lynching, quite close to her husband's office, they decided to get the hell out of there, and they moved up to Chicago. Now, unfortunately, her, it was that around 1929, and the Depression hit, and her husband lost his job, and he started to abuse her. Now, Florence was no wasn't going wasn't any victim, so she quickly divorced him. So here was a, a an African-American woman, single, with three children. So she had difficult times. She had difficult times. She wrote jingles for the silent cinemas and did all that kind of thing. But she was a great. She survived and she triumphed. She eventually wrote, uh, she won a competition for a symphony and it was play, her, the, the music was played by the, the, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which was great. She was one of the first to make that breakthrough. And she continued to do that. Now, she achieved some fame in her life, but it was fleeting. And she was constantly, constantly fighting with them, um, you know, trying to get her stuff performed. She died quite young, and uh, her music kind of disappeared. But uh, as luck would have it, uh, people thought she, her her and her music would be consigned to the dustbin of history. But a young family were doing up a house down close to where she lived and they found a whole chest full of manuscripts with her name at the bottom of them. So they were smart enough, they got on, they googled it and found out and they donated all those manuscripts to the university uh, and uh, they realised what they had and since then there has been a a considerable revival of uh, Florence Price's music and thank God for it because some of her music is really lively and her symphonies are just wonderful. Now, of course, there were Irish composers as well that we should mention because people like Ina Boyle, who we've talked about on the show before, uh, made significant contributions and produced very beautiful pieces of work and, again, didn't get the recognition they deserved. Yeah, funny, I haven't... Uh, it's, it's one of the criticisms that have been made of me that uh, I haven't dealt with her in the book or, and there's a few others as well, but uh, uh, I just ran out of space and uh, I was told to keep the, my numbers relatively low. Two I did mention now is, one was Augusta Holmes. Augusta Holmes was of Irish descent. Her father came from Cork. Now, she was, again, a very 
strong-willed woman and uh, wrote um, wrote lots of um, uh, great music, some symphonic music, some uh, music. Uh, her famous one was um, um, "Night and Love." It was an include. It was a symphonic ode, "Ludus Pro Patria." Uh, but she was strong, determined, and made her mark. And again, it's I cannot understand why we're not hearing a lot more of her music. Um, Elizabeth McConkie, another more recent composer, uh, she has Irish descent. She always claimed she was Irish, although she spent most of her life in England. And of course, there's Amy Beach. Amy Beach was of Scots-Irish descent and a very famous American woman. But how, how she became famous was the time that Dvořák, if you remember, Dvořák came to America. And his mission at the time was to teach the Americans how to write classical music in the mode of European music, um, uh, that that make them the music they be that they could compose be every bit as good as the European music. But when he arrived, he observed in a newspaper, "I'm delighted to see lots of women playing music and singing and taking part in orchestras. That's really great. However, they are no real help to us because they, sim- they simply can't compose." So the young Amy, who was quite young at the time, took him to task and wrote in the newspaper that how dare he, how dare he say such a thing and proceeded to list really, really good female composers and quietly but firmly put Dvořák in his box. She went on to write lots of music, probably the best known one is the Gaelic Symphony, which is a short symphony, but is based on lots of um, three or four Irish uh, folk songs. And it's a really strong, powerful piece of music. And finally, Noel, I suspect today there's a lot of composers who just want to be known as composers. They, they don't want the description of being a female composer or a woman composer. Well, well that, I was going to finish up with that. That Nowadays, and I might get into trouble for saying this, is that uh, a lot of composers think that problem is more or less solved. Uh, I, I, I mentioned only two modern composers. One is Joan Tower, uh, an American, and the other is Judith Weir, the English composer. Now, they both claim that they did not suffer serious discrimination uh, against them at all. In fact, they do not like being called uh, female composers. They want to be called composers. If they're called female composers, they reckon they're swimming in a small pond. They would much prefer to be called just composers. To them, music is genderless. It's, you shouldn't have to ask whether... It's like an actor or an actress nowadays. It's, it's the same argument. They are just composers whether they're male or female. Now, some would argue there is still some discrimination against female composers, and maybe there is, but it's certainly a long ways. At least now, female composer is regarded as normal. Uh, they're not frowned on. They're not, society doesn't think badly of them or anything else. So uh, I think the problem is a long way towards being solved. Okay, my thanks to Dr. Noel Cullerton, author of Classical Women, for joining us tonight to talk about the women who broke barriers in the world of music. Uh, thanks a million, Noel. Okay, thank thanks you. Thanks Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. 
Earlier this month, a previously unknown self-portrait of Vincent van Gogh was discovered hidden on the back of another painting. And experts at the National Galleries of Scotland made the discovery when the canvas was x-rayed before an exhibition. And to talk to me about this discovery, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Francis Fowle, Professor of 19th Century Art at the University of Edinburgh and Senior Curator of French Art at the National Galleries of Scotland. And she's the 2022 Van Gogh Museum Visiting Fellow and is on the Advisory Board of the Van Gogh Worldwide Project, a digital platform for all works by Vincent van Gogh. Francis, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Do discoveries like this happen often? It really seems quite an extraordinary find. Uh, Well, I can say no. It's an absolutely once-in-a-lifetime experience for me. And really, I suppose it's down to the wonders of technology. We don't x-ray our paintings as a matter of course. And um, the only reason why we were x-raying this work was really in connection with partly with the exhibition, which opens at the end of the month. But also I've been working on um, the French paintings in the National Gallery's collection. And for the purposes of of that book, which will come out in the autumn, uh, Van Gogh is categorised as French because he spent most of his career in Paris and elsewhere. So talk to me about the original painting, Head of a Peasant Woman. So that was the the original painting, but uh, Van Gogh liked to reuse canvases to save money and work on the other side. That's right. So when he, um, he actually was, uh, the picture painting that we have is dates from 1885 and he painted it in Noonan in the Netherlands. Um, and then uh, in 1886, the following year, he moved to Paris. Um, he stayed there for a couple of years before then moving on to the south of France. Um so when he was in Paris, he was being supported by his brother, Theo van Gogh. But um, he, he also, I mean, he did struggle to have enough money. He, he couldn't sell his pictures very easily at all. In fact, not at all. Um, and, uh, he, and so therefore, he would often reuse canvases and not by painting on top of the works necessarily, but he did that as well. But but by turning turning them over in this case um, and painting on the other side, and does a whole process of authentication have to take place then to make sure that it is by him that it it's dated to the right period? And how difficult is it to to uncover and reveal everything with the glue and the cardboard and everything else that's there? Oh, I see. So you're suggesting that maybe someone else could have come and worked. I think it's pretty unlikely that, that would have happened. Um, we know that the the painting, the original painting, the uh, peasant woman is um, is is genuine. It's even been subject to a thread count. It's part. We know exactly which roll of canvas it was taken from, and there are other works by Van Gogh which came from the same roll. Um, we also know that the provenance is completely sound. It it was left to um, after Van Gogh's death um, and after the death of his brother Theo. It it um, came into the hands of um, like most of his works um, of Jo Van Gogh Bonger, who was his sister-in-law, and she lent it to an exhibition in 1905 and we think it was on that occasion that the self-portrait was covered over um so it seems pretty unlikely the other thing is that um uh, there are examples there are other examples of him doing exactly this so there are five in the van gogh museum um three of which actually were uncovered in 1929 they removed the cardboard from the back um so it had been covered in exactly the same way the van gogh museum has obviously looked at our work too and has, has formed the same conclusion Brilliant. And and I love the way that visitors to the exhibition will be able to view it, view the X-ray image. And there's a specially crafted light box at the centre of the display. So like great care and effort has been made to make sure that people will be able to to view it as, as best they can. Yes. So there's a special section of the exhibition which shows the painting, the peasant woman painting um, alongside the X-ray. 
and um, and there's also an explanatory panel, and there are other works by Van Gogh actually in the same section. So, yes, I I mean you, you need to come to the exhibition if you want to see it straight away. Um, eventually, I suppose it will be taken down. The exhibition goes on till mid-November, so there's plenty of time, and then after that it will be taken down and we'll we'll engage in further research and and hopefully at some point we'll be able to remove the card and the glue, the glue is the problem, and reveal what's underneath. So what does this self-portrait tell us about Van Gogh? Well, so I can describe it a little bit, of course, because we're on radio. It's <laughs> it, he's wearing a hat. Um, it's, I mean, he which he often does in in um, you know in other self-portraits. Um, he has quite a brooding expression, I have to say. He's bearded and he's wearing a neckerchief and a jacket, which is actually slightly unusual. He didn't necessarily always wear jackets, but um, there are other self-portraits of him in various guises. He liked to play around with the idea of um, of how he kind of portrayed himself. I think it's the first find by a UK institution of a, an unknown self-portrait. Yeah, it, 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 it certainly, as far as we know, um, it, certainly, uh, certainly of an unknown portrait. And I'm, I'm, as far as I know, no discovery has been made like this in the UK. I think, think it's really significant for us as well, because it means that we've got, um, you know, at the moment we have works from the earlier periods, these darker toned works from the, the, for the period before he went to Paris. Um, we've got examples of work from the period when he was working in the south of France. So at, uh, he was working in Arles and then in uh, Saint-Rémy, which is when he admitted himself to the asylum. Um, and, but we have nothing from the Paris period. And this, this is a really important period for him because he was really experimenting, you know, trying to find his mature style. And it was the moment when he was exposed to Impressionism for the first time and also the work of the neo-Impressionists, you know, the artists who kind of laid on paint using dots of colour. So he was, it's, it's incredibly, it will be an experimental work. Of course, we can't see it. We have to kind of theorise perhaps a little bit about what we think we're going to see. Um, but it will be much, much brighter in colour than the painting on the other side. And of course, the the original painting, uh, Head of a Peasant Woman, that's, uh, that has an interesting history as well in terms of its owners. The mother of Ian Fleming, that's right. Um, she was called Evelyn Fleming and she uh, married a man called Valentine Fleming, as in Fleming's Bank, which is where she kind of got her money from. But after he died, it was a condition of his will that she wouldn't inherit um, if she remarried. And she became the lover of Augustus John, the artist. And it was him that almost certainly persuaded her to buy the the, the Van Gogh painting. Um, so she's quite an interesting and colourful figure in her own right. And then, of course, her son, she had, well, both two, two of her sons were writers, but Ian Fleming's the more famous one. So why is Van Gogh one of the most, considered one of the most important artists in world history and also one of the most loved? Because there is something maybe about his his, his life story as well as the extraordinary mm. colours in the work that you know, means that, you know, he is even in now one of the most beloved artists of all time. I think that's right. He's completely sort of endlessly fascinating in a way. I think it's partly because we know so much about him through the letters, this very extensive correspondence that he carried on. He wrote to his brother on a very regular basis and also wrote to other members of his family, wrote to artists. Um, so we knew exactly what he was thinking and also the kind of struggles, the struggles he had with mental health, um, uh, you know, so he's he's someone which I, you know everybody knows about him. Everyone knows the story of Van Gogh, really. Um, and so to have a self-portrait is really wonderful for us. 
You've described this find as an incredible gift for Scotland and I think it's it's going to be incredible for the exhibition but also I suppose it's incredible for fans of Van Gogh to find there's always something exciting about a new discovery. Yeah, absolutely. I know. And it doesn't happen every day. <laughs> I mean, to buy a Van Gogh on the market would, would be well beyond the gallery's means and so it's uh, it's quite extraordinary to to kind of gain a new work for nothing um, and something which has been under our noses all the time. Why was his work not successful in his own lifetime and why did it take until after his death and how long was it after his death when suddenly uh, his genius was recognised? Well, um, I mean, during his lifetime, I mean, even his brother Theo didn't really have much faith, I think, in what he was doing. It was too radical, too kind of, he was too ahead of his time. Um, he, he, we know of one painting that he did sell um, and that he probably, he gave away a number of paintings as well. Um, but I mean, the reason was he was just, yes, he, he was, even though people were finding it difficult to come to terms with the Impressionists um, you know, during his lifetime. Um, and then after he died, well, thanks to Johan Gogh Bonger, um, his work actually was shown in various exhibitions and it was it was actually in Germany where the taste for his work really took off initially. She sent a number of works to um, the dealer, the art dealer Paul Cassira in Berlin, who also had a gallery in um, in Amsterdam. And um, in the early 20th century, there were actually quite a number of German collectors who began to buy his work. And um, it became so popular, actually, at that time in the by the 20s, well, not pop, was popular the right word, I don't know. But anyway, the market was developing by the 20s and even not just in in Germany and Europe, but elsewhere in Europe, um, and, and even a little bit in America, but it took a bit of bit more time to take off in America. But anyway, right around the late 1920s, there was a man called Otto Wacker who produced around 30 fake Van Goghs in collaboration with his brother, and he was taken to trial in 1932. And, and um, it was interesting that the people who testified at that trial really didn't understand, you know, they, the levels of connoisseurship were not absolutely sound and they were they didn't necessarily agree about which works were fake and which ones were were real. But anyway, it just it just shows how um, how tricky that whole kind of market is and how how long it took for um, people to really understand his work. And the exhibition is also a story of visionary Scottish collectors who invested in some of these innovative and and radical artworks. And and uh, only for that we wouldn't have them in in the national collection there. That's right. So yes, I'm going to look at because it's really thanks to um, benefactors and, and donors that the co- the collection is as good as it is. Um, but I'm also in the exhibition hoping to tell the story of well, I will tell the story of some of these kind of unknown collectors, some of the women collectors in particular, like Evelyn Fleming, um, like there's a woman called um, Elizabeth Workman who was a, a, a champion dinghy sailor um, and who whose husband was a he owned a shipbuilding company in Belfast um, and he so her buying and she bought a lot of um, impressionist and post-impressionist art in the 1920s was it was really funded this this um, taste for impressionism and post-impressionism was funded by the income from his business and then when it came to um, the crash in the late the late 1920s his business sadly went into liquidation and uh, she was forced to sell the entire collection and so we, we know little about her so hope, hopefully the exhibition will uncover some of these you know these unknown these overlooked collectors and think more about their contribution 
and also some wonderful works by Claude Monet and uh, uh, some Matisse. And so it's it's bringing together, yeah. uh, as it's called, a taste for Impressionism, but it's bringing together some of the great artists of that period. Uh, yes, absolutely. So it tells the story really of the development of Impressionism right through from kind of pre-Impressionist works. So from Millet, um, right to to up to Matisse. And um, there will be, I mean, there's, there's, we've got a whole, you know, walls of paintings by by, by Monet, by Degas, uh, by Vuillard. Um, and then the, the final room actually will be um, the, this wonderful jazz series, Matisse's jazz series, which has been framed in, his, in these incredible startling white frames and is on display for the first time. There will also be other works which have never been shown before. For example, a little uh, Degas sculpture of the 14-year-old dancer, um, which has been in the collection. And during my, mem- my uh, career at the galleries, has never been on show. So... Um, hopefully it will be quite a, um, uh, an eye-opener, let's say, for the public. Is it true that you're also going to be showing uh, some counterfeit works because there were some <laughs> forgeries done in the 1930s and this is a way of almost, I think, testing uh, visitors to see if they'll be able to tell the difference? Yes, that's right. Um, so we are, we've got, there are actually around three works in the show. Um, well, there are, there are probably more that where the authenticity has been disputed at one time or another. That's not to say that they're not authentic. It's just to do with what I was talking about before, people's anxiety around the, the fakes industry. And um, so we've got two, two where they are actually identified as fakes and then one which will not be identified. And so it's up to the audience or up to the visitor to, um, to guess which one it is. Well, that sounds like an absolutely brilliant way of testing uh, people to uh, this exhibition. It's a taste for Impressionism uh, running from the 30th of July to the 13th of November at the Royal Academy of Scotland. And my thanks to Professor Francis Fowle for joining me tonight to talk about that previously unknown self-portrait of Vincent van Gogh that will be on display there. Uh, Professor Francis Fowle, Professor of 19th Century Art at the University of Edinburgh and Senior Curator of French Art at the National Galleries of Scotland. Francis, thank Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was really enjoyable. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. Well, some more great shows coming up in the weeks and months ahead. We'd also love to hear your thoughts. Send us your ideas to talkinghistory at newstalk.com. We've been Talking History. Good night. <laughs>